Guardian Unlimited. Of the questions to the Prime Minister, Jeffrey M. Donaldson. Number one, Mr. Speaker. Mrs. Mr. Speaker, sir, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in the House, I will have further such meetings later today. I'm sure the Prime Minister will join with me in condemning the incendiary bomb attacks in Belfast last night. The people, the Republican terrorists behind these attacks, have nothing to offer the people of Northern Ireland. As the Democratic Unionist Party continues to consult widely on the St Andrews Agreement, Will the Prime Minister, once and for all, confirm that the Government will not grant an amnesty to IRA terrorists yeah. who are on the run, yeah. Yeah. and will not reintroduce the deeply offensive legislation that was previously brought before this House, or seek to achieve the same objective by any other means? Yeah. My right hon. Friend, the Secretary of State, has already made clear to this House that there will be no amnesty for on the runs and that we have absolutely no intention of bringing back legislation on this issue. In respect to the first point uh, the Honourable Gentleman makes, I entirely share his condemnation of the attacks last night and I think he's also right in pointing out why they're taking place. They're taking place precisely because people don't want the prospect of agreement that was offered at St Andrews. They're trying to disrupt it. They're trying to change uh, the stated desire of people in Northern Ireland to live together in peace. And the best response to such acts of violence is to make sure that the St Andrews Agreement is fully implemented, that we get the institutions back up and running, and that the peace process uh, thrives and moves Northern Ireland forward. If we can do that, then that, I think, is the best response to those who use violence. Eddie McGrady. Mr Speaker, apropos of the St Andrews Agreement, would the Prime Minister agree that secret side deals can frustrate even the most uh, creditable agreement? And as the parties have very many difficult points further to negotiate, would he, in fact, lift the veil, as it were, from these uh, uh, side deals so that we have a better relationship, as one said before, and that no further side deals can be done. For example, would he not agree that the question of education or by academic selection or otherwise in Northern Ireland is not for one party alone, but for the entire community? Well, I think that the, the most important thing, actually, is that the decisions on things like education are taken by the directly elected politicians in Northern Ireland. And that's one reason why we want the St Andrews Agreement to succeed. And that agreement is very open about what is necessary. We need to resolve the issues to do with policing. But I think there is a tremendous desire right across the political parties in Northern Ireland for that St Andrews Agreement to be implemented. And the basic uh, deal that has been right at the heart of this from the very word go is uh, peace in return for exclusively democratic means being used in order to further people's political objectives. And if everyone can get behind that essential position in Northern Ireland, then the St Andrews Agreement will be implemented and the peace process will move forward. David Cameron. Yeah. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Today, hundreds of health workers will be lobbying Parliament, worried about deficits, worried about cuts and worried about low morale in our health service. The government's chief medical officer, the government... Oh, oh dear. Let, let the right honourable gentleman speak. Oh, oh dear. They don't like hearing about labour cuts in our NHS. 
The government's chief medical officer has said evidence from within the NHS tells a consistent story for public health of poor morale, declining numbers, inadequate recruitment and budgets being raided to solve financial deficits. Was the chief medical officer speaking for the government? Well, let me tell you what is actually happening within the National Health Service. There are 400,000 fewer people on waiting lists than in 1997. Waiting times for cataracts and heart operations are down. People now get their cancer treatment on time. There are more 300,000 more staff in the NHS. And if he wants the best evidence of improvement in the National Health Service, someone said this morning, if you were to say to me, is the NHS better now than it was in 1997, I think there have been improvements. Who was that? The Shadow Health Spokesman. What about the Chief Medical Officer who advises the government? As ever, he never answers the question. Let's hear from someone else in the NHS. The Chairman of the British Medical Association says that this year has seen vitally needed healthcare professionals losing their jobs. He says he's dismayed by what he calls the incoherence of current government policies and the damage they cause to the NHS. After nine years of a Labour government, did the Prime Minister ever think morale would be so low in the NHS? There was, of course, the comprehensive report published on the health service by the Health Care Commission just a few days ago, and this is what it said. There are real improvements to applaud and celebrate. Patients are seeing real improvements to health care services in England and Wales. They're waiting less time for treatments. There are now more doctors, more nurses and more health care professionals. Now, the fact of the matter is, yes, of course, there are changes in the National Health Service taking place, rightly because there are more cases being done on a day-case basis. There's new technology that is shortening waiting times. There is specialist care being developed. There is more done in primary care settings now. All of this is part of necessary change. And his party, having first of all opposed all the investment in the National Health Service, now apparently are also opposing the reform. And the only way the National Health Service is going to improve is keep the money coming in, not cut it back, which is his policy, and make sure we make the reforms to have value for money. The health service professionals aren't here protesting about our policies, they're protesting about his cuts. Now, if he won't, if he won't listen to people within the health service, will he listen to his own health guru, Sir Derek Wanless? Derek Wanless told the Chancellor the money could have been better spent. And we've now got an account of how the conversation actually went. Sir Derek said to the Chancellor, your policies since 1997 have made it worse. There was then an uncomfortable silence. Brown was no longer interested in the conversation. Does, does that sound at all familiar to the Prime Minister? Mr Speaker, there is, there is, there is one issue which is whether the National Health Service has got better since 1997 as a result of the investment and reform. Now even his own shadow health spokesman admits that it has. It's got better because we've got the largest ever hospital building programme underway. It's got better because there are more staff in the National Health Service. It's got better because the very targets he wants to scrap are giving reduced waiting times and reduced waiting lists. But yes, it's true. There are real difficulties in the National Health Service. Of course there are. There are bound to be when we undergo a process of change. 
But he says they were, they're protesting about our policy, not his. It's hardly surprising, I may say, when we look at what his policy is. And I was, I was just about to indicate why we wouldn't follow it. For once, the Prime Minister admits there are real difficulties in the NHS. Aren't the real failings in the health service down to bungled contracts, endless reorganisations and top-down targets? Aren't those the hallmarks of the Chancellor of the Exchequer? The reason we have managed to get waiting times and waiting lists down, the reason why people are being treated for cancer far quicker, the reason why we've actually got 150,000 fewer deaths from heart disease since 1997 is precisely because we've laid down targets for minimum treatment. Now, if he is saying he's going to get rid of targets inside the National Health Service, that will mean that those patients at the moment that are guaranteed proper waiting times, proper treatment, that are guaranteed, for example, when they go to accident emergency departments, they can be seen quickly, they will no longer have those standards. Now, if that is his policy, then not merely is he committed to cutting the investment in the health service, but he's going to take away the very minimum standards that have delivered the improvements his own health spokesman admits to. I know he doesn't want to talk about the Chancellor. He can't even mention his name, but let's just spend a moment on it. Let me put the question I put to him three weeks ago. Back in January, the Prime Minister said, I'm absolutely happy that Gordon Brown will be my successor. Now, does the Prime Minister... Oh, order. Oh, order. I let the right honourable gentleman away with that before. But this matter is not going to be belaboured because the Prime Minister is here to talk about business of the government. Oh, order. Well, I, I'm giving a ruling here, and it's an important point. Order. It's about business of the government. The, who will be the next leader of the Labour Party is for the Labour Party uh, to talk about the same. Order. I'm, I'm giving the ruling. Ultimately, it may, cause it, it may be the case that it would turn out that that leader will become the Prime Minister. But I'm telling the right honourable gentleman, it's not a matter for the floor of the House. This Prime Minister, order, order, I tell the right honourable gentleman, this is a matter uh, that the matters. Don't, I say to the honourable gentleman, don't keep interrupting me or I'll suspend this sitting, and then his leader won't be able to speak. I make it clear it's not a matter for the Prime Minister who is responsible for government, for government business. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, are you honestly saying we cannot ask the Prime Minister of the country? Order. 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 May we get some calmness. What I'm saying, and of course, Anything I see from this chair is said honestly. And I tell it, the right honourable gentleman, who he has no right to ask on the floor of the House at Prime Minister's question time, who the Prime Minister is supporting for an office within the Labour Party. Order. 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 Perhaps I could just, with my last question, ask the Prime Minister 
who he'd like to see as the next Prime Minister of this country. Uh, order, order, uh, order, order, order. I'll allow that. That's an order. Prime Minister. Well, um, I was simply going to say that a record... I am about to answer. I am about to answer. I am about to answer that a record that has delivered as Chancellor the lowest inflation, lowest unemployment, lowest interest rates in this country's history, that has managed the strongest growth of any major industrial economy, that as a result of that has delivered record investment in the National Health Service, is a rather better recommendation than having spent some time advising Norman Lamont on Black Wednesday. I've called an honourable member. We move on. Terry Rooney. My, my right honourable friend will be aware that uh, term renewal is now in liquidation, which means there's very little money available for compensation for those suffering mesothelioma. Will he join me in congratulating the campaign by myself and Amicus to have the, have the withdrawal of benefits previously paid deducted from that compensation as announced last Thursday? And will he confirm that this could only happen under Labour government? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I would like to pay tribute um, to what my honourable friend has done in campaigning on this issue and to the Amicus Union and to all the others who have taken up the cause of these um, particular group of employees. As a result of that um, campaign, which has now been successful, there are around 4,000 people who will receive, I think, around about £6,000 in compensation each. And that is, along with all the money paid out in miners' compensation, is an indication, I think, of the profound difference in values that a Labour government brings to the government of this country. Sir Mingus Campbell. Last night, the Foreign Secretary declined to commit the government to an inquiry into Iraq. But later, the Defence Secretary said that there would be such an inquiry. Which is it? The Foreign Secretary stated the position in debate very clearly yesterday. We certainly do not rule out such an inquiry, and we say in our own motion that lessons must, of course, be learned. It's important always to do that. But this is not the time for such decisions. I think that had that motion gone through last night, it would have sent a signal that would have dismayed our coalition allies. It would have dismayed the Iraqi government. It would have heartened all those that are fighting us in Iraq, and that's why we oppose that, that motion and why it is important, frankly, that we stand up and we fight those in Iraq who are trying to prevent the democratic process taking root. With regard to an inquiry, isn't it now the time for a British strategy based on British priorities and not one which depends upon the outcome of the American elections. Yeah. And should that strategy not now be phased withdrawal sooner rather than later? Yeah. Let me just explain something to the right honourable gentleman. British troops have been in Iraq for three and a half years with a United Nations resolution. When British forces are trying to help those who want democracy to function in Iraq, 
when American forces are trying to make sure that that democratic process is secured, they're not simply acting on behalf of America or Britain. They're acting in accordance with the United Nations resolution and the full support of the Iraqi government. Well, of course, the trouble with some of his, his, his honourable members is they want to pray the United Nations in aid when it suits them, but when it doesn't suit them, they then ignore it. Mr. Speaker. I'm sure my right honourable friend will be aware that last Thursday marked the 20th anniversary of bus deregulation outside London. He may not be aware that in South Yorkshire, for every three people who rode on a bus in 1986, there's now one passenger and two empty seats. Will my right honourable friend now accept that bus deregulation for most areas has been a failed Thatcherite experiment? And will he back the commitment given by our right honourable friend, the Secretary of State for Transport? not to turn the clock back to 1986, but to give real powers to passenger transport authorities to ensure that our constituents outside London have the same access to decent public transport services that are currently available to people in the capital. Well, of course, I, I fully understand uh, why the Secretary of State for Transport has said that and, and, and fully support it, of course. And the point that my Honourable Friend is making in relation to Sheffield is a point that I hear in many different parts of the country. In London, for example, where there has been a, a tougher system of regulation, some of the same problems haven't appeared. So without in any sense turning the clock back, I think it's entirely right to look at this issue again. Dr. Murison, what requests for warrior armoured vehicles have been received from commanders in Afghanistan? to help make good the currently inadequate protection available to our troops. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the Defence Secretary is just indicating that there haven't been such requests. Um, but in any event, if there were such requests, and indeed requests for any type of equipment, whether in Afghanistan or elsewhere, of course it would be our duty to meet those requests. And let me just explain to the Honourable Gentleman and to others in respect of Afghanistan that the work we're doing there obviously is extremely important. Yes, it has proved very, very tough down in the south of Afghanistan. Naturally, when our forces go into an area like Helmand, and once they begin operating there, then they will adjust their own tactics and strategy. That's perfectly natural. And they may well come back to us and say, we need more of this or uh, more uh, forces or troops or, or whatever it is that they think is necessary to accomplish the mission. That is entirely natural. But what is happening down in the south is a quite remarkable tribute to the, what the British troops are doing. And it's absolutely vital again to support a democratic process in Afghanistan and both in Iraq and Afghanistan. Let's be clear, the very people disrupting that democratic process are the same people we're fighting worldwide in this battle against terrorism. So we should support our forces in Afghanistan and in Iraq in taking them on. Helen Jones. Warrington Borough Council have just said they are minded to approve plans for the Amiga development, the largest industrial development site in the northwest. But they cannot make the final decision because Government Office Northwest has issued an Article 14 direction. In view of the strategic importance of this site, would my right honourable friend take a personal interest in ensuring that the planning process is completed as soon as possible? And will he also assure me that Warrington will get the investment in education and skills which will enable local people, particularly those in the most deprived areas, to take advantage of the 12,000 highly skilled jobs which will be created by this development. Well, I do uh, know something about the project, and I can say to my honourable friend, I'm very happy to, uh, to follow its, its, its progress. Um, through because I know it, uh, it involves a lot of potential jobs in the area and it's a very big uh, development indeed. I mean, in respect of 
education. Of course, as she will know, the Warrington Collegiate, for example, has, has got a major, I think, £27 million project. And I can tell her in, in uh, her own constituency, there's something in the region of £1,000 a year per pupil extra funding. And it's precisely because we want to keep that funding going that it's important that the, the position of this government remains, that both in respect of education and health, we do nothing that interrupts that flow of investment that is delivering real results on the ground. I sincerely thank the Prime Minister for his considerable support for the Motor Neuron Disease Association and its quest to cure this debilitating and sadly invariably fatal disease. Is he aware of the continuing negotiations with the Department of Health on matched funding towards our £15 million research target? And will he join me in inviting colleagues to spend a few minutes at the launch of the MND Association's Research Foundation in Strangers' uh, Dining Room today between four and six in order to advance our vision of a world free of MND? First of all, uh, I look forward to meeting the Chief Executive of the uh, Foundation. Um, uh, shortly, and also to say that I, I know the Minister of State from the Department of Health will attend the reception, and I hope as many honourable members attend as possible. And I would like to say to him, I mean, we, we um, are not yet at the stage of being able to respond to specific proposals from the Moton Urine Disease Foundation, but when we um, get those proposals, we will respond to it. And let me just uh, congratulate him for the work that he's doing on behalf of um, uh, the, the Moton Urine Disease Foundation. This is a very, very serious condition. Uh, the people who campaign for it are often incredibly brave and committed people who, who know, unfortunately, they will die as a result of having this disease, and we would certainly like to support it in any way we can. Jeff Innes. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, is the, does the Prime Minister recall the, the bill which I tabled last year entitled the Age of Sale of Tobacco Bill, which proposed to raise the age of sale of tobacco from 16 to 18? to bring it in line with alcohol. Um, is he also aware of the recent report by the government's alcohol, uh, the advisory committee on drug misuse, which fully backs my bill? And does he agree with me that the time is right now to introduce this measure in the next Queen's speech? Well, we will certainly uh, strongly consider what my honourable friend is saying. Um, there was virtually unanimous support for raising the age to uh, 18, from health groups and retailers and the tobacco industry parents, schools and young people. Um, and we hope to put measures before Parliament shortly to bring those into force. And we're looking very carefully, obviously, at the proposals he's making. Clifton Brown. Yeah. When the Prime Minister promoted the Right Honourable Gentleman, the Member for Ashfield, to be Secretary of State for Europe and then demoted him hours later to become Minister of State, did he anticipate that his Foreign Secretary would have to answer all questions on Europe at Foreign Office questions yesterday? And does he have any other odd job in mind for his Right Honourable Friend? Uh, actually, what my Right Honourable Friend is doing on behalf of this country in Europe is absolutely excellent. And as a result of what he's doing, for example, we are able to negotiate we are able to negotiate difficult things on behalf of this country in the European Union, and that, I may say, is a rather better position than the position of his party, which is to renegotiate the terms of our membership of the European Union and to separate themselves out even from other Conservative parties in Europe. Gordon Banks. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, while it's vital that the UK plays its role in reducing domestic carbon emissions uh, to fight global warming, does my right honourable friend not agree that the real prize lies with an international solution? And can he tell the House what he is doing to encourage a greater commitment from some of our international partners? 
First of all, um, my honourable friend is entirely right in saying that although it's important that we exercise leadership here in relation to climate change, nonetheless the solution to this, given that Britain accounts for somewhere in the region of 2% of worldwide emissions, the, the, the solution to this must lie at an international level, and that is why in the European Union we're working with partners to extend the European trading system, and why in the G8 plus 5 dialogue that was started at Glen Eagles last year, and includes not just G8 members, but India and Brazil and China, that's why we are trying to get a framework agreement that means that when the Kyoto Protocol expires in 2012, we have a binding set of commitments on behalf of the international community that then sends the right signal not just to countries but to business and industry to invest. And that is frankly the only way that in the end we will tackle and defeat climate change. Peter Love. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr Speaker, in his letter to me about the decision to single out chaplaincy, for the for dramatic cuts in Worcestershire's hospitals. The Prime Minister rightly underlined the commitment to the NHS providing holistic care when he said patients' religious and spiritual needs have to be addressed as part of an overall care package. Does he realise that these cuts are not compatible with that principle yeah. and a dangerous precedent is being set that other trusts under financial pressure will have to follow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... It, I do, of course, recall the correspondence, and uh, I've corresponded with the uh, particular priest who, who, who has been uh, um, leading this campaign, and I entirely understand the concerns people have. On, on the other hand, I do think these decisions have to be taken at a local level. And he will know that over the past few years, obviously, there's been a, a major expansion in the numbers of people working in the National Health Service locally in, in, in Worcestershire. But it's also true that when trusts come to, to balance their books and make changes for the future, they have got to take those decisions. Now, I hope they take them sensitively, and I hope they take them recognizing the tremendous pastoral care uh, and the value of that um, to local patients. But I don't think it would be right for me to interfere directly in that process. Does my rational friend the Prime Minister agree with me, trade unions, business leaders, the people of Copeland and nuclear industry analysts that a policy of nuclear as a last resort is really a policy of no nuclear generation at all? Well, I think what is absolutely right, and I know my honourable friend for, for very obvious reasons has a, a specific interest in this, if we do not take the decisions on nuclear power now, then we risk a situation where our energy security is put at risk and our effort to defeat climate change is put at risk. And the reason for this is very, very simple. Over the next 10 or 15 years, we are going to go from self-sufficiency in oil and gas to importing 80, 90 percent oil and gas. We are going to lose the existing nuclear power stations. Uh, we have already done an immense amount on energy efficiency and renewables and so on. But without the component of nuclear power, it's hard for me to see at any rate how we are going to be able both to reduce CO2 emissions and to make sure that we are not dependent on foreign imports of oil and gas in the future. Sir Robert Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Speaker. This week the Trade and Industry Committee have made clear that if the government are to achieve their goal of social inclusion and financial inclusion, they're going to have to maintain the post office network over and above what will be commercially viable for the post office so to do. Does the Prime Minister therefore accept their recommendation that in principle a social network payment is going to have to carry on beyond 2008? Well, what I, I do accept is this. Um, that there is a role for public subsidy. Indeed, over the past few years, I think we put somewhere in the region of uh, £2 billion of subsidy into the post office network, precisely because we recognise it as a social um, as well as a commercial purpose. And we are looking now at how we can sustain that purpose. The trouble is, as, as he will know, and I met the um, sub-post masters or their representatives myself last, last week, and they are 
people doing an excellent job, often in very, very difficult circumstances, of providing a, a tremendous local service. But, on the other hand, we have to make sure that service is actually viable for the long term. Now, we can support it, but it's still going to have to be viable and sufficiently viable, frankly, for people to come and volunteer to run these post offices. So, for, for those reasons, we will um, make our announcement in response to their campaign shortly. I agree with them it has a social purpose, but it's got to be obviously limited by the amount of funds we're going to have available to, to, to subsidize it. What we should look, however, is to see whether there are other services they can provide that give them a different and more modern rationale. Alison Seebeck. Plymouth's Excellence Cluster has cut fixed-term exclusions by three-quarters in secondary schools, almost 90% in primary schools in just one year, successfully breaking cycles of disruptive behaviour. Would my right honourable friend agree with me that the lessons learned from schemes like this, which tackle head-on unacceptable behaviour, should be applied more widely? I certainly agree that the excellence cluster in, in, in Plymouth uh, has worked very, very well. And, of course, similar things are happening in different parts of the country as well. And it's worth just pointing out, for example, in, in London, as a result of targeted um, investment in education and action through the Excellence in City programmes, whereas there used to be a situation where many boroughs would have 25% or fewer kids getting good GCSEs, now no borough gets fewer than 40%. And in places like Plymouth, the results have really increased quite dramatically over the past few years. And I think sometimes we want to pay tribute not just to uh, the teachers and the, and the staff in those schools, but actually to the work that pupils and parents are doing right throughout this country in giving us the best school results we've ever had. Mr. Paul Beresford. I hope the Prime Minister is aware, through ongoing cooperation between members on this side of the chamber and government ministers, particularly in the Home Office, there's been considerable strengthening in the legislation dealing with paedophiles. Sadly, just as this is happening, the Met Police, who have a tight budget, are about to cut considerable numbers of their men and women that are working in child protection. Could I ask the Prime Minister to talk to his namesake in the Met Police and ask them to look again to protect children in this country and London? Well, I met some of the uh, child protection officers, uh, myself and Downing Street, the other day, not actually from London, but different parts of the country, and they do a superb job of work. I mean, I, I would simply say that the Metropolitan Police budget, I think, has increased significantly over the past few years. And obviously, again, these are decisions principally for the Met uh, Police Commissioner, but my right honourable friend has indicated he's very happy to raise the issue um, with uh, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner. I'm sure we'll be in touch with the honourable gentleman about it. Order. Guardian Unlimited.